This morning, I want to talk to you about Saint Nick. Of course, I'm not referring to that jolly old elf who had a broad face and a round little belly that shook when he laughed like a bowl full of jelly. No, I'm not referring to Saint Nicholas, but rather I'm referring to Saint Nicodemus. I acknowledge that Nicodemus is not the first Christmas character that comes to your mind. But I also want to submit to you this morning that the summary statements in John's gospel following Nicodemus' experience with Jesus have much to do with Christmas. So this morning I invite you to open your Bible and turn to John chapter 3, verses 16 to 18. Once you found them in sacred scripture, will you please stand out of reverence the public reading of God's holy word? John chapter 3, I'll be reading verses 16, 17, and 18. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he's not believed in the name of God's one and only son. This is the word of the Lord and thanks be to God. You may be seated. In our three verse passage this morning, you and I find God's passion on display in verse 16. God's purpose is found in verse 17. And God's plan is revealed in verse 18. Out of all the verses in the Bible, there's not one that's more familiar than John 3.16. We see it on billboards and bumper stickers. It's found on poster boards at ball games. For God so loved the world that he gave his one only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Embedded in that verse is God's glorious passion for you. For God so loved the world. The word for love is the word agape. It's God's love. It's unconditional. It's unmerited. It is always and forever. Because of his love, for God so loved the world, the word that's translated world is cosmos. In the opening chapters of the book of Genesis, we discover that God's height of creativity is given in the creation of humanity. So for us to read, for God so loved the world, is to say God loves you. God loves you with an unconditional, unmerited kind of love. For God so loved the world. You and I should not marvel at the love of God because the world is so big. You and I ought to marvel at the love of God because the world is so bad. It's not that we ought to marvel at God's love because of the breadth of of his love, but we ought to marvel at the depth of his love. For God still loves a world where a 64-year-old man can open fire on 22,000 concert goers in Las Vegas, Nevada. And once he pumps 1,100 rounds of ammunition into that crowd, what is left are 58 dead individuals and 546 who are injured. And God still loves this world. God still loves the world. We're on at least 45 occasions this year 
Someone entered a school campus, many of them elementary school campuses, and opened fire, killing hundreds of helpless children. God still loves the world. Where a man goes into First Baptist Church of Sutherland Springs, Texas, and once the dust settles, 22 of those congregation members are dead, marking the 307th mass shooting in the United States this year. God still loves a world where this year alone, more than 650,000 unwanted pregnancies will end in abortion. And regardless of what any politician stands to believe, I'm telling you that regardless of whether it's a late-term abortion, a mid-term abortion, a first-term abortion, it is morally incomprehensible unto the Lord, and biblically, it is uh, an abomination in the very sight of God. And God still loves a world where husbands despise their wives and wives detest their husbands. God still loves a world where there is literally verbal vomit that is spewed in the home, in the church, in the marketplace. God still loves a world where people get frustrated with one another. God still loves a world where there have been two world wars and over a 100,000 civil wars across this globe in human history. God still loves this world. You and I ought to marvel, not because the world is so big, but because the world is so bad and God still loves us. God still loves this world. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Now in a very succinct way, that's Christmas. That's John's Christmas statement. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. It is out of his enormous passion. It is out of his depth of love that God sent the second person of the Trinity, the word himself, wrapped him in flesh, sent him to the birth canal of a virgin girl. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. This phrase that's translated eternal life, this is a common theme in John's gospel. This is the first time that you ever come across it in John's gospel, but it won't be the last. This is the first of 17 references of eternal life. That because of God's depth of passion for you and for me, he sent Jesus so that we could have eternal life. This is what blew the mind of Nicodemus. In the preceding passage, it's Nicodemus who comes to Jesus under the cover of night this is John's way of not just telling us the time of day, but also the condition of Nicodemus' soul. For Nicodemus, in the words of Isaiah, was like a man groping in darkness. He not only came under the cover of night, in the middle of night, but his soul was dark with sin and twisted with iniquity, and he was lost as lost could be. And he came asking the question, how can I be saved? It's obvious that you are a man of God. It's obvious because of all the miracle, the miraculous things that you do, that you've come from God. How can I be saved? And Jesus said to him, unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. 
This whole notion of being born again was something that blew the mind of Nicodemus. How is it possible for a grown man to re-enter his mother's womb a second time? This is not only mind-boggling, this is downright nasty. Don't you think? Because Nicodemus is thinking to himself, how in the world can a six-foot-one, 210 man re-enter his mother's womb? What son would want to do that to mama? And what mama would allow the son to do it? It was painful the first time. That would be just grotesque the second time. How in the world can a man be born again? In fact, this is what caused Nicodemus to throw up his hands and say, how can this be? And Jesus almost seemed surprised. For he said, Nicodemus, you are Israel's teacher. You are the preacher to the nations. Nicodemus was a Pharisee. He was a member of the Sanhedrin, the ruling Jewish council. If anybody should understand this notion of being born again, it ought to be someone who knows the law of Moses. And as a Pharisee, Nicodemus prided himself on not only knowing the law, but also being able to interpret it accurately. And he says, how can this be? How is it possible for a man to be born again? And Jesus says, unless you are born again, you cannot enter God's kingdom. You cannot have eternal life. See, John 3, 16 reveals God's passion. In John 3, 17, it reveals God's purpose. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Jesus came not for condemnation, but Jesus came for salvation, to save those wretched sinners. And I'm not talking about them, I'm talking about me. For God to save wretched, despicable, sinful men and women, just like you and just like me, Jesus came not to condemn us, but to save us. In the Greek language, the typical sentence structure is that it begins with a verb followed by a subject followed by an object. And in the Greek language, which is the language of the New Testament, there is no way for an author to italicize or underline or somehow make the word bold as to provide emphasis. So the only way that a Greek author could do that would be throw a word in front of the verb. And whenever you come across a Greek sentence, and if there are words before a verb, that tells you they're placed there intentionally for emphasis. Do you know what the first word in the Greek text of John 3, 17 is, it's the word not. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. This is the most emphatic way that John could write this text. It is not that Jesus came to condemn you, but Jesus came to save you. And the only way for you to have eternal life is through Jesus Christ. It is through Jesus that you, my friend, can be born again. This is what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus. It's only through me that you can have rebirth. It's only through me that your sins can be washed away. To say that you and I need rebirth is to say that we need, in the words of D.A. Carson, a radical transformation. It's not that we're just kind of sort of bad. And so we just need to fine tune or to tweak something here or there. Or maybe just to exchange some of our parts so that we can get better parts. It's, it's not that we just need something a little bit better. We need a total makeover. D.A. Carson says it is a radical transformation. In his his commentary on the Gospel of John, it is D.A. Carson who says, since there is nothing in us that's not defective, since there's nothing in us that's not defective, the whole notion of being born again implies the need for a new nature. Even for someone like Nicodemus, D.A. Carson writes, Even for someone like Nicodemus, 
He demands and needs a radical transformation. It is not by accident that John places this story of Nicodemus right beside the next story in John chapter 4 of the Samaritan woman at the well. John does this on purpose. He is showing us that regardless of who you are, regardless of where you fall on the humanistic spectrum, every person needs to be reborn. Every person needs a radical transformation. It's not that you just make yourself better. It's not that you just fine-tune a few things here or there. It's not that you just stop saying a few words and start doing a couple of things. No, you and I are so sinful, so tainted. We are so despicable, but we are dead in our sin that we need a radical transformation, regardless of whether you are Nicodemus or like the Samaritan woman at the well. Nicodemus, he's the religious man. He's the one who is morally upright. He's the one who knows more Old Testament law than you and me combined. He knows the Old Testament. He knows the word of God. He can spit out a few verses here and there. Yet he's lost. And he needs a radical transformation. In the very next chapter, we're introduced to this anonymous woman, this Samaritan woman at a well. And she's the, she's the direct opposite of Nicodemus. She's immoral. She's a homewrecker. She is promiscuous. She's had five failed marriages. And the guy she's shacking up with right now, he's not her husband either. And Jesus calls her out on this just to reveal the depth of of her need for the Lord. And regardless of where you find yourself on the human spectrum this morning, I'm here to tell you that all of us need a radical transformation. Regardless of whether you are religious and spiritual and morally upright like Nicodemus and you can quote more than a few verses or you are morally irreprehensible. You are somebody who is promiscuous and you look more like the world and the culture than Christ and you look like this anonymous woman at the Samaritan well. Regardless of where you find yourself, you, me, everybody in desperate need of a radical transformation. The reason Jesus came was not to condemn us even further, but the reason Jesus came was to give us salvation. I've told you before about that great quote by James Sanders, who says the biblical characters are not given to us as models for morality, but rather as mirrors for identity. That when we look into the pages of scripture, we see people who look just like us. And as I look out over the crowd, I see some people that look like Nicodemus. And I I see some people that look like the anonymous Samaritan woman at the well. And I see a host of people that's a combination of both. Sometimes we look like St. Nick. Other times we look like that immoral woman at the well. Regardless, whoever I'm looking at, you are an individual who desperately needs a radical transformation that can only come by being born again through Jesus Christ. So verse 18, it reveals the plan. How does God display his passion and and, and how does he fulfill and execute the purpose of salvation? Well, the plan is given in verse 18. He who believes in Jesus has eternal life. He who does not believe stands condemned already. Because he's not believed in the name of God's one and only son. 
The way that you receive this eternal life is by believing. It is through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's exclusive faith in Christ and Christ alone. The only way you go from condemnation to salvation is through personal faith in the accomplished work of who Jesus is and what he's going to do for you on the cross. It is only through belief and faith in the Lord. This is the only way that a person goes into salvation and enters into the kingdom of God. It is not that condemnation results when an individual rejects the gospel. People think that. They think, well, if a person rejects the gospel, then they're condemned. No, John says you're condemned already. It's not that rejection of the gospel condemns you. Because if that were the case, if it, was, if it was true that rejection of the gospel condemns a person, then you and I would need to stop all evangelistic efforts. Because there could be nothing crueler than to give a person the opportunity to either receive the gospel or reject it. Because if it's true that condemnation results in the rejection of the gospel, then don't give a person the opportunity to reject, right? But it's not true because you and I are condemned already. There's nothing we can do to make us more condemned. We are born, stillborn before the Lord. We are dead in our sins. And the only way we go from condemnation to salvation is through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So because faith is needed in order for a person to be saved, then you and I ought to go tell on the mountains, over the hills and everywhere. Go tell on the mountains that Jesus Christ is born. Because it's not the rejection of the gospel that condemns somebody. The moment they're born, they're condemned already. This is why Jesus says you must be born again. Because the only way for you to overcome the curse of condemnation is for you to be born again. How is that possible? How can you have eternal life? Is it by entering through your mother's womb a second time? No, it is by belief in the name of God's one and only son, Jesus the Christ. The conversation ends with Nicodemus by Jesus saying, just as the son of man was, just as the serpent was lifted up in the desert, so the son of man must be lifted up. He's referencing the story that takes place in Numbers chapter 21, that following the exodus of the Israelites out of Egypt, they began to grumble against God and grumble against their leader, Moses. And God didn't take too kindly to that. So he sent venomous snakes And once those snakes would bite individuals, that poison would cause their bodies to puff up, swell up, and then they die. It didn't take very long for them to say, you know, maybe we made a little mistake. Maybe God does know what he's doing, and maybe Moses is not the bozo that we thought he was. So Moses, can you please go to God on our behalf and ask somehow, some way, can he provide redemption for us? Can he give us forgiveness and healing? And Moses said, I'll do what I can. And he went to God and God said, I want you to fashion for yourself a bronze serpent. I want you to set it on a pole and put it in the middle of the camp, lift it up high. And anyone who's been snake bitten, if they look up in faith, they will be healed. And sure enough, according to Numbers 21, there were many people that looked up and they were healed, but not everybody. There were still some stiff-necked, rebellious rednecks. And they said, we're not going to look up. And they died in their condemnation. Jesus says to Nicodemus, just as the serpent was lifted up in the desert, so the son of man will be lifted up. For all of us have been snake bitten. All of us are guilty as sinners. We are condemned at the point of birth. 
We are condemned. There's no way we can save ourselves. There's no way we can do more good than bad to earn our salvation. We are snake bitten and the poison of sin is pulsating throughout our bodies. And if we don't do anything with it, we will die in that poisonous sin. But if we look and lift our gaze and look upon the one that was pierced, if we look upon Jesus Christ in faith, we will be healed. We will be restored. As I read the story and as I think about Nicodemus, I I wonder, did Nicodemus become a follower of Jesus that night? I mean, after that conversation, after the whole, you know, getting over the, the weird uh, picture of, you know, being born again and what that would look like. And, and after Jesus talking about the faith is needed and just as the son of man, uh, the son of man will be lifted up and draw all men unto himself. I wonder, I wonder, I wonder if Nicodemus became a believer that night. I don't know. I, I don't. But I can tell you this much. John does give us two more selfies of Nicodemus. Two more little snapshots. Two more little portraits of Nicodemus. The next one comes in chapter 7, verse 50. Nicodemus is with his pharisaical cronies. And they are ridiculing Jesus. And Nicodemus actually sides with Jesus. And they spin on him. And they say, what, are you one of his disciples? Are you one of those redneck Galileans? And Nicodemus stands there and he takes the ridicule. The the second selfie snapshot of Nicodemus comes at the end of the gospel. John chapter 19, verse 39. That following the death of Jesus, it is Joseph of Arimathea who grants permission to take the dead body of Christ, place him into a, a borrowed tomb and give him proper burial. And John tells us specifically that Nicodemus comes with Joseph of Arimathea. That Nicodemus, the same one that came to him under the cover of night, Nicodemus comes and he has purchased with his own money 75 pounds of a mixture of myrrh and other lotions to anoint the body of Jesus for proper burial. Did Nicodemus become a believer in Christ? Well, I can only examine the fruit of the life of Nicodemus. And I'll tell you this much. Somebody who's willing to be ridiculed for Christ Somebody who's willing to give his own money to serve Christ is probably a follower of Christ. I'm just looking at the fruit. I'm just examining what John provides for us. And that's why I refer to him as Saint Nick. He is Saint Nicodemus. I know he is, he does not, uh, he's not found uh, in any of your nativity scenes. I realize he is not found in any of your understanding of the Christmas story. I get it. I understand it. But when you come to the gospel of John, John would say, St. Nick, Nicodemus, has a lot to do with Christmas. Because in John 3, 16, you find God's passion for you. John 3, 17, God's ultimate purpose in sending Jesus was not for your condemnation, but for your salvation. And John 3, 18 is the perfect plan The way you go from condemnation to salvation is by exclusive belief and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't know that Nicodemus knew the song, but I bet that as he is anointing the body of Jesus for proper burial, he may have been saying, my Jesus, I love thee.
I know thou art mine. For thee all the follies of sin I resign. My gracious redeemer, my savior art thou. If ever I've loved thee, my Jesus, it's now. What about you, my friend? Where do you find yourself on that humanistic spectrum? Somewhere between Nicodemus and the anonymous woman at the Samaritan well. Where do you find yourself? Do you understand God's enormous love for you? The love of God ought to astound you. Not because the world is so big, but because the world is so bad. Do you understand your desperate need for a radical transformation? Do you realize that it is through faith in Jesus Christ that you are saved? And if you do not have a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, then today, before we leave, please come, take me, take one of the pastors by the hand and say, Pastor, I need this Jesus in my life. Or maybe, my friend, you are a Christ follower. Because you are willing to be ridiculed for Christ. You've given your money to serve Christ. You are following Christ in faith, in life, in all that you have. But maybe as you walk out of this place, you just need to be more intentional on going and telling the good news that Jesus Christ is born. Regardless, may we walk out of here as men and women who've had a radical transformation for the good and glory of God and there ain't nobody that could keep us quiet. To God be the glory because I've got some good news today. God has sent his son. He is the savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. We give this invitation. And Lord, I pray that for someone here who needs to make a decision for Christ, I pray that he, that, that individual will do it today. Lord, hear the prayers of your people that have gathered this morning. And Lord, please radically transform us through faith in Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen.